Welcome everybody to another episode of the Hopeful Majority. This is part of our 2024 election uh, specials. We're going to have Marianne Williamson on, who's running for a presidential candidate on the Democratic side. Marianne ran in 2020. She's running for president again. And importantly, we've had many candidates that we want to have on. We'll, we've had on before. We had Vivek Ramaswamy on in episode 17. We've had folks like Andrew Yang on. And for all those new people that are joining, I want you to just have a couple of quick things. Usually the hopeful majority episodes are uh, a conversation. Before that conversation, I have a quick monologue on these presidential candidate episodes. Let's face it. You're not here for my thoughts. You want to hear from these candidates themselves. And so we want to get to straight to what Marianne has to say. I just want to give you two quick things before we jump into this conversation. And remember, every Monday, we're releasing episodes on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, because we're trying to build a space where we're fighting outrage, building nuance, having productive dialogues. So two quick things before we get into this conversation with Marianne Williamson. The first is the goal of these conversations with these presidential candidates is not to get wrapped up in culture war issues and hot button debates. There's so many other interviews and places that you can find a lot of that. What's the specific objective of the hopeful majority, it's to actually understand our candidates. It's to understand the people that we might disagree with or we might agree with. You'll notice in this conversation that Marianne talks about policy positions like universal health care and free college and tuition. And I don't actually push back on the merits of those positions because I think that you can make up your mind about those positions. What I want to do is for you to be able to understand why is Marianne running? What are her motivations? We had a similar conversation like this with Vivek Ramaswamy, where the questions were very similar, because I think what the American people are looking for right now is not the culture war issues. And importantly, I think they can find a lot of places for those policy debates. I think what American people are looking for is candidates that are willing to put country above party, that are running not necessarily because they want to be president, but they're running because... They're interested in actually helping the country and they stand for ideas. And importantly, we will have anybody on from across the political spectrum that is willing to have a constructive discussion about why. Because I think that why is so important, especially at this moment in our politics. The second quick thing I'll say is I'm always getting better in these conversations. As you know, my background, I was a pre-med student in 2017 when these giant protests hit Berkeley, which caused me to get involved in trying to just be of help and play my small role. And so I can always be better in these conversations, these interviews. All of your feedback is welcome. I think I could have probably pushed back a little bit on certain policies and certain ideas. But in the moment, I felt like it was important to just create the space for you to understand Marianne's candidacy, why she's running, and why she's running again, and why she thinks that the presidential candidacy is the best way to get there. I hope you enjoy this conversation because the objective, as I've stated before, and as I hope you continue to join me on these conversations, is for us to explore our leaders and to understand not necessarily what is dividing us, but to understand and cover the possibilities for common ground, common understanding, not for some kumbaya sake, but to build a strong democracy that continues to realize the greatest ideals that our founders wrote into our constitution, our declaration of independence. Here we go. Here's a conversation with Marianne Williamson. I'll see you on the other side. Uh, Marianne Williamson, welcome to the Hopeful Majority. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we know how busy the campaign trail is. And as you know, um, you know, the conversation, as I was just telling you in the pre-record, this is not about gotcha questions or hot button culture war issues. This is really about trying to understand you as a person, your motivations, your desires. Why do you think at this moment in the country? And so the immediate thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, you ran for president in 2020. You've talked about how grueling the campaign trail can be. Uh, why are you running for president in, in 2024 on the Democratic side? I did know from my previous experience how grueling it is. Uh, so I entered the campaign this time far less naive than I was last time. Hmm. I felt like it was analogous to running into a burning building. But I had a sense of a kind of internal fire retardant. The mud that gets slung at you, the really vicious uh, weaponizing of character assassination and everything like that truly happens. Plus the rigging that Robert Kennedy Jr. has also described really happens. But I think that you, in order to live a well-lived life, don't do those, do, <clears throat> don't do those, don't do things in the final analysis because you have any guarantee of success. 
Hmm. You do them because they feel to you like the right thing to do. And hmm. usually the right thing prevails on some level. The abolitionists had no reason to believe that they could succeed. And the women suffragists had no reason to believe that they could succeed. And the civil rights movement had no reason to believe that they could succeed if you were only basing your analysis on material circumstances at the time. So I came into this knowing uh, the forces and the factors that were and are uh, rallied against me. I came in knowing how profound the institutional resistance is to the kind of um, change that my campaign represents. But I also know that I speak from a place that I believe on some level a majority of Americans are living in right now. <clears throat> a sense on both left and right. Well, before before we before we just go there really quickly, I just have to ask you, I mean, you contextualize your candidacy with the notion that this is the right thing to do. And maybe that's where you're going, but why do you think this is the right thing to do for you? Well, that, yes, that's what I was just about to say was that I'm speaking from a place in my heart and in my mind, an alignment between the two really, that I believe is shared by a majority of Americans. A majority of Americans on both the right and the left now realize that corporations govern this country, that the undue influence of corporate money <clears throat> exerted by insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, big food, big ag, big chemical companies, big banks, gun manufacturers, big oil, and defense contractors. Whether you're on the left or the right, you realize they form a matrix of power with such mm -hmm. undue influence on Washington that that's why we don't have universal health care, which both people in the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party want, according to their majorities. The majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want tuition-free college. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're rationing your insulin, you know that something is wrong and that it doesn't happen in any other advanced democracy. Every other advanced democracy has universal health care, tuition-free college. Uh, other countries that have subsidized childcare, that have paid family leave, a guaranteed living wage, guaranteed sick pay. People on both left and right are waking up now to the fact that soulless economic principles that have to do with short-term profit maximization for huge corporations, at this point, take precedence over <clears throat> the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. And that mm. those economic values take precedence over democratic values and humanitarian values. And the American people want to cut the cord with that aberrational perspective. Mm. We need to end the entire chapter of American history that is dominated by that undemocratic nonsense and begin anew. So if I'm listening to this right now, and you just mentioned that sort of matrix of power, and it seems like a lot of people on the left and the right are critical of that matrix of power. What comes to my mind is, why do you think that matrix of power exists? Um, what do you think empowered it? And why do you think you're the right person to be able to tackle that matrix of power? Okay, well, in terms of why it exists, there is some argument that I think historians will analyze. Some say, well, it started with the austerity of Jimmy Carter, but clearly it came upon us full blown with Ronald Reagan because it is the notion of trickle-down economics, an economic paradigm that was sold to the American people in what now is, was clearly a con that argued that if we did everything we could to push our resources in the direction of stockholders, <clears throat> that even though that this would be at the expense of other stakeholders, it would include uh, suppressing unions, it would include job elimination, it would include exploitation of workers. It would include squeezing resources out of the hands of every other stakeholders, the worker, the community, the environment, that somehow this would be good because the stockholders would then become job creators. And mm. then all that money would trickle down and lift all boats. Now, the problem is, as I just mentioned, their job model was not, their business model was not job creation. 
Their business model was job elimination and mm -hmm. exploitation of workers. So this not only has not lifted all boats, it's left millions and millions of people without even a life vest. It has led mm -hmm. to a transfer of $50 trillion from the 90%, 90% of Americans into the hands of a very few people. It has led to the largest income inequality in almost a hundred years. It has hollowed out America's middle class. I remind you that in the 1970s, the average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a house, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, and could afford to send their kids to college. And mm -hmm. now the majority of Americans represent and reflect uh, what they call economic anxiety, chronic economic anxiety, that's 70% of the American people. Now, what makes me the person? Just that I'm standing here. There are many people who know what I'm saying to be true. There are many people who believe what I'm saying. But those who are in office, you know, it's an interesting thing. People get sucked in to this system. And the DNC has decided, no, we're not going there. The corporatist element of the Democratic Party has decided, no, we're not going there. So it's not that I'm the only person who believes this, but apparently I'm the only person at this moment courageous enough to take on the DNC and say, well, I'm saying it anyway. And I think it would have to be someone from outside that system because that system <clears throat> is so bought and sold by corporate America. It's a legalized system of bribery at this point. So we'll, we'll definitely get to the DNC, the media blackout, um, why you think there are forces within the Democratic Party that don't want any dissension 24. But, you know, I can't help thinking about somebody that's listening to this that might be skeptical of what you're saying when it comes to what Americans want. You know, this I, I, I watch, as I told you right before this interview, that I was watching the Bill Mark interview. And one of the things that I didn't appreciate about that conversation was he seemed very condescending about um, your desires when it comes to empowering people. But there was this one stream of critique that I think a lot of people do have, which is that, of course, we want all these things, but how do we make it all work? And obviously, the context of the show is not a deep policy conversation, because I think people can go to a lot of different places to find that. But if you could just address that piece, which is that people do want a lot of these things. Um, and yet the question becomes, how do you actually execute to make it happen? That's an old fashioned um, belief that we need to drop now. Uh, about 40 years ago, even 30 years ago, we could still say, well, of course we all want the same things. It's just a question of how to get there. No, we don't. No, we don't. There are forces in this country who do not want an empowered middle class, who really do not want the vast majority of people of every color, of every race, of every ethnicity, of every, to have the real opportunities for infinite abundance in their lives if they work hard enough. You know, there was a wonderful book um, called Democracy in Chains and, um, by Nancy McLean. And in that book, she traces all the way back to a man, an economist named James Buchanan, who actually right. at one point won a Nobel Prize. And he was his work was picked up by the Koch brothers and then the Koch brothers funded all the strategy that got us here. And this is about the primacy of property rights. And this goes back to our founding. You have forces in this country, they've always been there from the very beginning, who value property rights, who value their own ideological uh, and or financial purposes over and above the basic principle of democracy. The basic principle of democracy is that all men are created equal and everybody should have a shot. But let's not kid ourselves that that's what we all want because it's actually not what we all want. There are forces in this country. Who do you think doesn't want that? If we're, if we're just very specific, what are some of those forces? People who honestly believe that we're better off with an oligarchic model, who honestly believe that if basically a few people of a few uh, educated rich people, and uh, they, I'm not saying they always represent white, but a kind of white mentality, you know what I'm saying? And who who believe that uh, that's actually a better model for governance. Uh, I mean, that's just the way it is. They've always been there, and we should not be so naive as to think that everybody um, 
really wants the full empowerment and the the government to secure the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence did infuse those principles into the Declaration. All men are created equal. <clears throat> Governments are here to secure the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. However, 41 of the 56 signers were slave owners. So from the very beginning, there were people who meant it, but not if it challenged their own ideological or financial purposes. And that's what's happening now. So it's not about personalizing you know, it. or yeah. 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 Well, that's actually something that I appreciate about you, which is that uh, what's fascinating about your campaign is that it hasn't actually been very personalized. I think you speak and critique about broader ideas and people might debate your ideas, but I think that's the point of this democracy is to have those conversations. What's by the way, ironic is I think you mentioned, um, that my question is old fashioned. And I think that's the first time that me as a, as a 24 year old has been called old fashioned. So I think my, my mom will was old fashioned. That one idea, we all, that, that one idea, but it's like, no, we yeah. don't. Well, let's stop. So pretending. I, <laughs> I feel I feel I feel you on that. So right now, actually, Marianne, where I am is I'm in Charlottesville right now. And I um, I work a lot with the Thomas Jefferson Foundation here. And uh, you invoke the Declaration of Independence. And we talked about sort of what the founding fathers had written into the Declaration, but also some of the hypocrisy there. Um, this is slightly unrelated to what you just asked. But I, I keep coming to this question as a younger person, which is like, how do we grapple at this moment with both some of the hypocrisy of sort of American democracy, right? And yet feel a deep sense of love and purpose for this experiment that seems to be something that a lot of people aspire for. Like, why does it seem to be that we live in this world in which you can't hold these two conflicting ideas of analyzing, critiquing the hypocrisy within our economic models and some of the things that you've um, articulated here, but at the same time, uh, not letting that devolve into deep pessimism and cynicism about the entire country, which then leads us nowhere. How do you balance those two impulses? With intellectual and emotional maturity. Hmm. A, a mature person knows that life is filled with tragic contradictions and that there are all kinds of situations where more than one thing is true. But if you're basing your analysis on the kind of psychology you see on Twitter, or the kind of psychology you see presented to you by a political system that is actually predicated on maintaining that oppositional black white mentality, as in vote for me because they're wrong, then we won't get there. The truth is what you just said, that this country hasn't done everything right, but this country also hasn't done everything wrong. And that we must proceed in correction, course correction, from a place of we're doing this because we love America, not because we yeah. hate America. We're yeah. doing it because as a country, just as, as an individual, you don't heal in life unless you're willing to look in the mirror. Hmm. And sometimes it's hard to look in the mirror, but mature people know we have to. And that's why I, the entire, yeah. I'm sorry, go on. No, no, I, I was just, I wanted to ask you this. This is again, something that I've appreciated about you and the folks that have listened to these conversations know that um, oftentimes in our politics and our media, we run to critique the person. And I always try to find the best in every candidate that I've come across. We did this with Vivek. We've done this with Andrew Yang. Mm -hmm. Something that you've often talked about is this maturity question, right? Like, why does there seem to be this intellectual and spiritual void? And I think you've been somebody that's really raised this. So I want you to keep going on that train of thought, but I just want to emphasize this for the listeners that I think this is something that you've really brought to the forefront is that there seems to be a lack of maturity. And my question is why? Why is that the case? Because there has been over the last several decades, since World War II particularly, the development of a, pol of a political class. And the political class is predicated on really holding the power in their own hands. Now, Jefferson said that the only safe repository for power is in the hands of the people. However, we have been trained to farm out our best thinking. Let them handle it. If I just vote Democrat, they'll handle it. If I just vote Republican, they'll handle it. 
And now people are beginning to see how corrupt both parties have become. And so yeah. we, we need to realize we've been trained to limit our political imagination. We've been trained to expect too little. And now it's the realization that we ourselves want to rise to the occasion because the solution is not going to come from the dominance of a status quo that has become completely corrupted by corporate influence because it's their donor class. We need to intervene. We need to mm -hmm. intercede. It's just like a, an intervention with a drug addict or an alcoholic. We've got to get in there. And that's why. What is what does intervention look like for you? What does that mean? Electing someone, namely me at this point, given that I'm the one running, who doesn't come from that system and is not afraid to call on that system on its own dysfunction, hmm. uh, is, is willing to go there. I, uh, they can't do anything for me. What are they going to do? Take away my seat on the appropriations committee? What are they going to do? Primary me in the next election? I'm not going in there for that. I'm going in there for one so I'm sorry, go on. It, well, no, no, no. I, I, I think what's interesting is, let's say somebody that doesn't know you, right? Or maybe is listening listening to this for the first time and is is learning more about you or maybe has heard of you. And in fact, in prep for this conversation, I did a poll and 85% uh, of people had heard of you. About 40% of those people followed you closely and the other 40% knew of you but hadn't followed you closely. And so let's say I'm one of those 40% that is listening to this conversation right now and I'm curious, and you were touching on this a little bit, but what makes you somebody that's not part of that political class? And importantly, as you know, some folks like Ezra Klein have written about this a lot in, in about why we're polarized, that oftentimes it's not that there's bad people in government, it's that corrupt systems corrupt good people. And, and, and what makes you particularly uh, uh, adept at navigating what you think is a corrupt system? Well, first of all, I'm not one of them. I mean, they would have you think that only people whose careers were ensconced for years in driving the car that drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to lead us out of this ditch. I think the opposite. I think that that system needs to be disrupted. So they say, but you're not a political car mechanic. But the problem is not that we lack political car mechanics in Washington. The problem is that we're on the wrong road. And there's something about being inside that car that makes you blind to the fact that you're on the wrong road. Now, there are good people in Washington. There are good people in government. And there are good people trying to make good things happen there. I'm not even saying they're all corrupted. It's, you know, this is not personal. This is about how systems operate. Now, what is it about me? Nothing except that I'm willing to be here. Hmm. So, so they're So they're saying... So they're saying, well, maybe somebody else will jump in who's from the system. But if anybody jumps in at this point, that would mean that they were afraid to take on the DNC before now. But we're supposed to somehow think they're going to be magically courageous enough to take on the insurance companies or the pharmaceutical companies. You know, I'm not the great, you know, we don't need another technocrat. We need a vision. And our vision needs to be that of the Declaration of Independence, updated for the 21st century. I'm not the greatest visionary in America, but I'm the only one running for the Democratic nomination for president. So I wouldn't, you know, I don't have any like Trump-esque, I'm, I'm the only one who could do it. No, but yeah. I point out that I'm the only one who is doing it and that should mean a lot to people. Well, you mentioned Trump and one thing that I can't stop thinking about right now is you're talking about this class that you are providing people the avenue to be able to disrupt. I mean, part of that was Trump's appeal and, and and any disruptors appeal, good or bad, it doesn't really matter. That was his appeal to many people in the Midwest and the Rust Belt. He felt like a lot of people felt like he was the only one that could access their voice. Um, now, the challenge was, as you've identified in a very humble way, that you're not the only one, but you're at least somebody willing to do it. Um, let's, I don't want to critique or ask questions about whether or not you're right on that. I think people can assess that on their own, but advancing this conversation beyond where usually the media goes. The question I do have for you is, do you think there was something valuable that Donald Trump did in trying to raise a uh, critique against a system? Because it seems like you and him actually have a parallel in that way. And same with somebody like Bernie Sanders and other disruptive forces. <clears throat> What was valuable and legitimate was the impulse among many people, including those who voted for him, to cut the cord 
with a dysfunctional Washington. What was not valuable was his efforts because he didn't mean them. I'm sorry, he didn't mean them. And he conned people. So in 2016, there were two candidates who said to people, your rage is legitimate and the system is rigged against you, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. The difference between them was that Bernie did mean it and Bernie would have done something about it. Donald Trump, you know, I read an interview with his son-in-law. Jared Kushner said we were in the McDonald's, which I find mind-blowing right there. And he said to his father-in-law, there are a lot of angry people out there and we could harness that and make you president. So I think saying that message was just a way that Donald Trump found to close the deal and really to prey on people's legitimate upset. Mm. And how can you be sure that how can you be sure that he didn't mean it? How can I what? How can you be sure that he didn't mean it? How can I destroy that? How can I what that he didn't mean it? How, how, can, how can you be sure that he didn't mean it? How can I be it? sure? Well, the 2017 tax cut, $2 trillion, hmm. 83 cents of every dollar went to the richest corporations and individuals, only increasing income inequality. The middle class tax cut there was a good idea. And if, if I, I would want to repeal that tax cut, but put back in the middle class one as soon as possible. Donald Trump, his behavior uh, was not that of someone who was helping the little guy. His rhetoric is that he wants to help the little guy. Helping the quote unquote little guy means universal health care. Helping the quote unquote mm-hmm. little guy means tuition free college and tech school, subsidized childcare, paid family leave, guaranteed sick pay, guaranteed living wage. That if you really mm-hmm. want to help the people, that's what you stand for. When you think about uh, Bernie supporters in 2016, a lot of young people supported Bernie. I think a lot of young people are actually very interested in your candidacy. Uh, there does seem to be some disillusionment around Bernie as well, that uh, it seems like he's acquiesced to President Biden's agenda. Uh, how do you handle that critique? And do you think that there's <clears throat> some relevance or truth to that? Well, first of all, if you look back at the Build Back Better bill, I mean, if that had passed, it really would have been amazing. If that had passed, I, I doubt that I'd be here right now because that was amazing. And Bernie certainly had a lot of influence in that. And it was because of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, of course, that they did, were not able to do that. Now, at this point, and listen, Bernie Sanders makes his decisions. Bernie Sanders is in the Senate. Bernie clearly feels if they just get another couple of Democratic senators and Biden is still the president, that they will be able to get those goals met. Obviously, I'm disappointed by that because, number one, I don't agree. And I think that my agenda, obviously, is far more Bernie-esque than Biden's is. But that's the that's Bernie Sanders. You know, he's a senator. And I appreciate that. Listen, I don't wish to have um, a personal. This is about systems to me. Sure. So I think... Um, that was his decision. Well, obviously, I don't agree. Let, with let's that. let's talk about that system. What do you think somebody that disagrees with you most misunderstands about you or your candidacy? Oh, I think what people misunderstand about me is the unbelievable false narratives that have been promulgated about me. You know, we all know about the con uh, the concept of manufactured consent. Well, there's also manufactured derision. Uh, The system as it is practices, if they want someone out of the conversation, they assassinate someone's character. And so much fairy dust has been thrown in people's eyes that I'm anti-science, that I'm anti-vax, that I told AIDS patients not to take their medicine, that, uh, um, and now the newest one is that I'm really not even a nice person. Um, You know, I've read articles about myself and I thought, well, if I didn't know me, and I read that article, I wouldn't like me either. Hmm. Hmm. That's how it works. You throw on a big, big, big drop of misogyny in there, I have to tell you. We started the conversation off this way, which is that what drives you, what motivates you? And I'd asked Vivek a version of this question, and you you invoked a little bit of this, which is that this stuff is grueling. It's an emotional roller coaster. And frankly, what I'm hearing from you and the way that I'm sensing sort of the way that you're showing up is that it almost seems like 
this is not something that you want, but it feels like something that you're called to. Um, that it's not something that you're jumping in just because you feel like this is the fun thing to do, but because you feel like a deep sense of responsibility to doing it. And so my question for you is, where does that come from for you? And importantly, when you read those articles, and I can tell somebody in the audience is like, Manu, you're acquiescing to Marianne Williamson. I could care less because I think that's the problem. Yeah, that don't we, don't give that. People, we don't give people the chance to be better or at least explain themselves. So the question I have is like, what keeps you going? Um, because any realistic person say there's no path to victory. The media is going to block you out. Uh, yes, it might be the right thing worth doing, or you believe that. What gives you the motivation to get out there on a daily basis and be on those campuses and talk to people, despite all of the 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 crappiness that is out there? Frankly, against everybody that seems to be doing anything public. You know, an Emerson poll came out <coughs> came out today, which is a very important poll, and it put me at ten percent. And in politics, somebody breaking double digits is like a big deal. And that is 10%, despite the fact that I've been so blackballed by the mainstream media, completely invisibilized and erased, which should disturb people right there. Because candidate suppression is a form of voter suppression. Now, imagine where I would be if people really heard me and had an opportunity to hear this message. And I think that the powers that be in the political industrial complex know that, and that's why they want to keep me off the air. Be that as it may, the first thing you asked me was, why do you want to do this? When, you know, I've had people ask me, why do you want to be president? I said, that word wants. Anybody who wants to be president, I don't know if I'd want to vote for them. Because to say that you want that job to me almost implies that you don't realize how serious this is. And it occurs to me sometimes, if you think the campaign is grueling, imagine what being president is. Hmm. So the word want is not what this is about. And I appreciate your acknowledging that you sent some of that. Politics is part art, part science, and part gut call. And I think in all of our lives, you find the North Star, the greatest most illumined North Star in life is something that you feel you have to do in order to live your most meaningful path. Um, mm -hmm. I am saying things that I believe need to be said. And I am proposing things that I believe need to be proposed and effectuated in order to keep fascism away from the White House. Franklin Roosevelt said that we would not have to worry about fascism taking over America as long as democracy delivered on its promises. Democracy delivering on its promises is a lot more than Bidenomics. It's a lot more than the infrastructure bill. It's a lot more than the CHIPS Act. It's universal health care. It's tuition-free college. It's canceling the college loan debt. It's guaranteed sick pay, subsidized childcare, paid family leave, and a guaranteed living wage. Those are all moderate positions in Europe in any advanced democracy. And people on both the right and the left are looking saying, well, why do we not have those things? Why have we been trained to expect so little? And it's because we have been conned and people realize it. And somebody needs to say this and somebody needs to turn the ship around because we're headed for the iceberg here. And the mm. Republican Party under its corporatist leadership is headed straight for the iceberg. And the Democratic corporatists are headed there more slowly and will hit it at a different angle. We need to turn the ship around. And I understand the profound institutional resistance to doing that. But uh, a president who lays it down that, that seriously and fundamentally and stands for fundamental economic reform rather than just the alleviation of stress is, I believe, um, a necessary element in getting it done. So I'm being, I'm being cognizant of your time, but something that comes to me in that when you invoke FDR and this notion that democracy is only as strong as it can be delivering, 
let's just separate these two things for a second. I think most people would agree with that sentiment that if democracy is not delivering, then authoritarianism fills the void. And yet I can't help asking the question and you know, I'm coming from a place of deep curiosity and not critique. So out of my place of deep curiosity, one thing I know is that oftentimes somebody will say that when somebody comes on around the block and is promising all of these things like universal healthcare and free tuition and college cancellation and loan debt, that in some cases that also sounds a little commie, you know, that is that actually possible? <clears throat> and I know that we haven't gotten to specifics here, but maybe if you could take this opportunity to outline yeah. Yeah. why you think that is possible and why that isn't also conning the American people. And I'll, okay, so this is the deal. And I say this to every audience. The president does not have a magic wand. The president should not have a magic wand. So I'm not saying all those things I just mentioned, elect me president and within six months they're gonna happen. That's not what I've ever said or am saying. We have three co-equal branches of government. You don't elect a president thinking, oh, this person is going to be able to make every change and quickly. You elect them on this is my consciousness around these issues. This is what I'm going to use to the best of my ability, the powers of the executive branch through uh, who I appoint, through executive, executive orders, through, my, uh, through the bully pulpit, and through my work with Congress. This is what I'm going to try my best. That's all a, a presidential candidate is saying. But I am saying that it's ridiculous at this point to say, oh, you have to have somebody who knows how to work with Congress, because how did that work out so well if you have a, a, a mansion of cinema, even if you're Joe Biden? Sure. So, I, sure. yeah, I'm not saying, but I, I will tell you this. Because of the authenticity of the conversation and my willingness to use the bully pulpit, you know, one of the things I say to people at uh talks all the time. I will lay it down and be as real with you when I'm president as I am with you as a candidate. I do believe, and I believe this is particularly true with younger audiences. I'm putting some ideas into the ethers, just like Bernie Sanders did with, with Me Medicare for All. You know, there is a, there is a, um, a, a point I read in a book last year that really made the distinction for me between a provocateur and an activist and a politician. And in a way, I'm all three. The provocateur just puts the ideas out there, even when they sound radical and it can't possibly happen. But they create the space for the activist to then come in and do the work. And then the mm -hmm. politician comes in and brings it to fruition. Those three stages have to occur in any great social justice movement. So at this point, it's about, you know, and I tell younger audiences this all the time. I say, I want to be in there for, for one term because I don't think in 2028 a baby boomer should be elected president. I want to go in there for one term. I won't be able in that time to turn the ship entirely around, but I feel I can get us around the curve. Then hand the baton to a younger generation to take it from there. But I can tell you this, these ideas will have become grounded in the political mind. These ideas will have been infused into the political ethers in the way they are not now because our political system says, oh, we don't want to go there. Don't have them thinking about that now because we can't have people thinking about that and satisfy the short-term profit maximization goals of our donors. Hmm. So at this point, well, let me just, I'm sorry. I, I would, I would, I would, no, I would, I would hold on, on, on that piece for a second. Um, and this is something I tell a lot of younger audiences too, Marianne, which is that I think young people are, are also really valuable, but we have to have humility when it comes to the conversation. I think older generations need to create the space. And one thing that I appreciate about what you're saying here, which is hard to say, by the way, um, is that I'm going to be here for one term and all I care about is shifting the Overton window and grounding these ideas. Now, the audience can debate whether or not those ideas are good or bad, but the objective of these conversations or for me to show the intentions behind the people running, because I think a big part of our division and our polarization is just our inability to actually see people for who they are. So being cognizant of your time, I've got a couple last questions for you, but where this is going for me right now, where I feel this going, where I feel the audience wanting to take this is, look, you've talked about your intentions. You've talked about shifting that Overton window. You think that you're the right person at, or maybe the only person that's saying this at this moment and you want to really stand for these ideas and push them out there. Somebody's right now thinking, and they're saying, well, that all sounds good to me, but 
there's a lot more to the problems in the world than just domestic. And we, for example, just had the conflict uh, with Israel and Hamas with that terrible invasion and terrorist attack and all of the subsequent violence and human pain that's happening. And you mentioned the seriousness of the presidency. Uh, why do you think uh, you can deal with a lot of those crises that don't seem to be as domestic, but certainly affect us as people? I have as much to say about foreign affairs as I have to say about domestic issues. What makes a governor of an American state uh, prepared to handle Hamas and Israel? So my, my comp I mean, there's this Wizard of Oz quality about people who serve in audience, uh, office. Like everybody thinks there's some Wizards of Oz. No, tear down the curtain. What makes any of them more capable? I think I have a more intelligent conversation, for instance, about Israel and Hamas than uh, actually most people serving in Congress today. Hmm. Um, you mentioned Biden, you mentioned 2024. To me, it seems like it makes sense to have a real debate and discussion of ideas. And yet you've also mentioned not wanting fascism in the White House. And let's say that that means, uh, from your standpoint, as you've said in previous comments, somebody on the right, um, and specifically Donald Trump, and somebody that's supporting Biden right now would say, well, having a candidacy that's countering President Biden actually is increasing our chances of fascism. Let's take that line of thinking. How do you respond to that? And why do you think that there is such a lack of dissension within the Democratic Party about who should run for president? Well, first of all, I'm not a spoiler. I'm running for the Democratic nomination. So there is no spoiler factor here. That's number one. Number two, I think a lot of Democrats are in denial about President Biden's chances against Donald Trump. And I think the crack in that facade is beginning to occur. The DNC has had a narrative. No, we all have to get behind Biden. We all have to get behind Biden. No, there can't be any break in the ranks. We all have to get behind Biden. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not really the way American democracy is supposed to work. The, the traditional role of the, of the party is to stand back and let the people decide who the nominee should be and then the party comes in. You know, George Washington, in his farewell address, warned us about political parties. He warned us about this. He said it would form factions of men, so he feared, who would be more loyal to their party than to their country. And John Adams said he saw them as the biggest threat to democracy. This, this idea that it has to be Biden is based on nothing except a PR narrative coming out from the Democratic Party. This should be a conversation that we're all having. And then if somebody hears the president's argument and hears mine and says, no, I think Biden is the better one, then they should vote for Biden. But right now there's an effort clearly to suppress the conversation. That's not democracy. Candidate suppression is, is a form of voter suppression. Now, my argument is this. This is not going to be a race like 2020. And President Biden just barely defeated him in 2020. And the argument was be afraid of the fascism, be very, very afraid. Listen, I'm glad it worked. I'm glad it worked. But let's be very clear. The people, the, the, Biden didn't win because of the sort of traditional managerial class who voted for him. That's not why he won. He won because of people who stood in line for seven hours thinking that we're going to get $2,000 checks, thinking that we're going to get a raised minimum wage, thinking that we're going to get codified voting rights, thinking they were going to get things that Biden has not delivered. The biggest hmm. threat to a Democratic victory in 2024 is not people voting for Trump. People are going to vote for Trump, are going to vote for him, they're going to vote for him even if he's in, in jail, so enough with obsessing about him. The biggest threat to a Democratic victory in 2024 is how many people are simply going to stay home if we don't offer more of a genuine alternative to what Trump is offering. So um, this is not going to be like 2020. This is going to be more like 2016. 
where the rabble was closer to the gates of the Bastille than anybody had any idea. And the establishment Democrats, I'm afraid, are in real denial about what's going on out there. There are millions and millions of people who are not that impressed by the CHIPS Act. They don't even know what it is. They're not that impressed by the infrastructure plan because, to be honest, they can't even afford a car. And who, while they're very happy that Bidenomics has served 20% of Americans, have had no visceral experience of it helping them at all. And that's why for, very for, no, no, I, I, uh, by the way, I would just say that you don't have to apologize when I jump, jump in, because I think that, uh, I'm just grateful for your time and I'm grateful for the way that you approach this conversation, you know, for anybody that's listening, that's like, Manu, why aren't you challenging Marianne's claims about Trump? Well, frankly, that's not the point of the conversation. And I would say that, you know, go to the Vivek Ramaswamy podcast if you want to hear a defense of Trump. But what I'm again, curious about is like, you're out here working your ass off, frankly, and I want to give you a chance to explain why that is the case. Last question I've got for you, all right, and this is more from my, like, uh, young person uh, standpoint, is that I hope people get a chance to understand who you are, what you care about, and I think a lot of young people uh, feel a lot of apathy. I think the, the, the point that you just made there is that, and Andrew Yang has made this point before, which is that we might not vote our way into authoritarianism, we're going to slump our way into authoritarianism, and... I do think that apathy and disengagement is a big risk across the board. And I also think that polarization is a big challenge right now in our country, specifically affective polarization, how we relate to one another, the dehumanization of each other. What is your advice to a young person that's listening right now? And they hear the critique of the political system. They hear how sucky and shitty it sounds. And what it actually caused them to think is I want no part of that. You know, in fact, it's something that I wrestle a lot with too, Marianne. Like I, you know, a lot of people say, well, Manu, have you thought about office? And to your point, like I, I was a pre-med student. I had no interest in any of this stuff. I, I got thrown into it because of these giant protests at UC Berkeley and, and, and that's what led to it. But politics seems like something that you don't want to touch. And my fear is that if that's the case, then there's no action. So what's your message to a young person that's listening to this? And they're like, Why would I ever want to get involved? I don't think that young people are apathetic. I think you just scratch the surface of what appears to be an apathetic person. And it's usually someone who cares passionately and is devastated by what's happening, but sees the system so locked up that they don't see what they can do. So they might go into a kind of emotional paralysis, but I think it's a, a misread of that to think that people don't care. I think people do care. And I think young people, you know, it used to be, oh, but they don't vote. Well, they do vote because they're voting for their lives. In 2020, the Democrats would not have kept the Senate if uh, the younger people had not voted. So I think younger people have appeared apathetic because nobody has been naming the truth. Young people today are not even 20th century people, and they don't see where they should live their lives at the effect of bad economic ideas left over from the 20th century. So when I talk to audiences of young people, those standing ovations at the end, they, they don't indicate apathy to me. They indicate, my God, thank you, somebody who's saying it. And, I, you know, let them have a, a, a candidate who is saying the truth, which is the system is rigged against you. We need to end an aberrational chapter of American history in which trickle-down economics has formed a a matrix of, of economic tyranny where the insurance companies and the pharmaceuticals and big food and big ag, it's carcinogens in your food, it's guns on your street, it's toxins in your water and your air, your lack of health care, you're, you're, you're rationing your insulin, your, your tax dollars going to fight wars that in many cases should not have been fought, your planet being further and further endangered because we're ramping up fossil fuel extraction when we should ramp it down. I understand why young people or anybody sees a political system that in the final analysis doesn't do much of anything to fix any of what I just said, saying, I'm not even going to participate. But in me, you have someone who is saying it's bullshit the same way you are. Now, mm. you, you said several times, like, what makes me the person? I'm not special. And I'm not saying anything. You know, I remember reading an article um, about my own career many years ago, about a, 
other aspects of my work, but I think it applies to this time as well. The, the journalist said, Marianne Williamson is not saying anything everybody else isn't saying. She's just saying it when the microphone is on. And um, it's not an accident that nobody else is out there saying it. Hmm. I mean, there is Jen Uygar now, but he's not constitutionally uh, qualified. He says he could argue it in front of the Supreme Court. But um, so running as a Democrat, and I don't think it has to be, well, you are, it's not like that. It's we, it's we. And you know, new thought um, leadership model for this century is not somebody who's dictating from high how it's going to be. I don't want to further that paradigm. The, the leadership of this time is about holding the space for the brilliance of others. What I hope to do, and I think I am doing with this campaign, is inspiring other people to use their voices. And if we have an election in which the voice of the people, as indicated by poll after poll, my agenda is more in line with the desires expressed and the will expressed by the majority of people than is than that of any other candidate. So to me, it wouldn't be a win for me. And, and your evidence, and I assume all. your evidence for that, and your evidence for that would be polling and showing consistency on a lot of these issues. Well, um, we know, yeah, we know, for instance, that a majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want universal health care. We know that a majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want uh, tuition-free college. Uh, the American mm -hmm. mind, it's really interesting. You look at poll after poll, the American, the people are not the problem. And that's really the issue here. The people want these things. The people, the American mind, according to the polls, is a little bit left of center. The problem is not the people. The problem is a sclerotic, bought and sold by corporate interest political system that literally suppresses the will of the people. That's why voting for one of them at this point is just um, acquiescing to the madness. And and I have an idea of like, you know, the reason why I didn't ask you the question of how do you hope to reduce polarization or bring unity is because I think what you're positing is that there's a new divide in our politics. And that's one of establishment versus anti-establishment, one of the system versus uh, the people. And, and I think a lot of people are positing new divides to try and break through sort of the sclerotic mess that I think a lot of Americans feel. I'm just, I, I'm very grateful for your time. I would say that, you know, uh, there is oftentimes a jump to generalize in candidacies and races. But one thing I've appreciated about the conversation is you've answered all the questions. And importantly, um, I think people did get an understanding of who you are and why you care and what the point is. And so I appreciate your time and, and thank you for joining the hopeful majority. Thank you. Thank you so much. And good luck to you with everything you're doing. Thanks, Marianne. Well, thank you so much to Marianne Williamson for joining the Hopeful Majority. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you found it productive. Perhaps parts of it you agreed with, perhaps parts of it you disagreed with. I hate to break it to you. That's the point because we need to be exposed to new perspectives, new ideas. And I hope that this conversation gave you the possibility to better understand. I would love for you to be able to subscribe if you're on YouTube, leave a review if you're on Spotify or Apple. Remember, every Monday we release conversations like this. If you want to see another presidential candidate, we had Vivek Ramaswamy on on episode 17, which was very different than Marianne, as you can imagine. We'll hopefully continue to have more candidates. You and I are building this hopeful majority together. I'll see you next week.